This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Paul in the Roman Tribune. Paul brought to the council. Paul divides the room, plot to kill Paul, and Paul sent to Felix. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Stanza four of the hymn, God loved the world so that he gave. In the seventh place, the word of God is not rightly divided. When there is a disposition to offer the comfort of the gospel only to those who have been made contrite by the law, not from fear of the wrath of punishment of God, but from the love of God. What exactly does that mean? We know God loves us, but does the love of God move someone to repentance, to proper contrition? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, October the 2nd. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We continue our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. And then in hour two, we'll be looking forward to Sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary, The Great Commandment and the Question, Whose Son is the Christ? Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy will be our guest. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois formerly served as Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Joy to be with you. We're going to jump into the 22nd evening lecture that CFW Walther is giving to these seminarians. And he starts by kind of ranting A little bit. And he spoke too soon. He says, what a change has taken place in so-called the Protestant church. Vulgar rationalists who turn the Bible into a code of ethics and declare the specifically Christian doctrines to be oriental myths and fantasies, valuable only so far as moral lessons may be drawn from them. These men have done acting their part and have gone into bankruptcy. Who is he talking about? And did he speak too soon? (laughs) You know, these things come in waves. So the wave that he was talking about had indeed begun to recede a little bit. It receded in the face of a time of renewal in the church. That was actually a very good thing. He was talking about, well, you know, the same sort of people that we would call the deists today. Do you remember the story about Thomas Jefferson sort of going through the Bible and he just sort of clipped out all the stuff that he didn't think was just terribly rational. And then what was left, that's what he thought should be the, the, the Christian faith. Well, the rationalists kind of did that exact same thing with the faith, basically cutting out anything that was supernatural, anything having to do with the sacraments, any kind of miracle, anything at all that did not fit with their idea of what Christianity really should be about, which is behave yourself and be a good person. So that had really receded. And there was a renewal in the church at the time of Walther. And he starts praising that as a good thing, but he noted that it contained already the seeds of its own destruction because it didn't go far enough. And what he meant by that was, 
They were content to confess that the Bible sort of contained the word of God, but they were very hesitant to say things like, Every single word of the Bible is inspired by God and is given to us directly by the Holy Spirit. And because they wouldn't do that, they didn't have an attitude of fear and trembling toward the word of God. And so Walther said they were going to be doomed to sort of repeat this past mistake of the rationalist. And you asked, did he speak too soon? Because what Walter saw was going to happen, happened, right? The same sort of thing that corrupted the church at the beginning of rationalism swings back into the church after this sort of time of renewal that she went through in the 19th century and begins to erode faith in the word of God again. And so, yes, we're facing the same sort of thing that he was facing in his own day. He thought it was done. We're like, "Mm, no, that wave's coming right back. Why does he begin that way when getting into this next thesis, the 11th thesis that has to do with how God creates proper contrition over sin? Well, he wants to deal with, with what it is that actually prepares a person for faith. And the way to get at that is to actually let the law of God do its killing job. And that means letting us hear the, the, the thunders of Sinai need to be heard as actually ringing in our ears from the Creator to whom we will give an account. That is what will set our hearts truly tremble and will make us be contrite. So when he's dealing with this thesis, he's dealing with a temptation people had to sort of take one of the fruits of faith and make it be a condition of contrition. And what I mean by that is, if it sounded weird when he laid it out, he said, when there is a disposition or, you know, you're inclined to offer the comfort of the gospel to those who have been made contrite by the law, okay, contrite by the law, not from fear of the wrath and punishment of God, but from the love of God. What he's saying is, this is the contrition which Christians have when they look at their sin And they grieve that they've offended their kind Heavenly Father. They grieve that they've offended the Lord Jesus who shed his blood so richly for them. They grieve that they've offended the Holy Spirit who had given so many gifts to them. That's something a Christian can repent of. That is not the kind of contrition and repentance that he's speaking of in this thesis, which the unbeliever comes to. That is simply bold terror. It is terror in front of God's holy demands. You must be perfect. And the price of not being perfect is hellfire. That's where you are headed and you can do squat about it. That's the preaching of the law that would bring a person to terror. And Walter says, if you think that that's really not what contrition is about and that An unbeliever should be able to produce the same kind of contrition that a believer will have when they think of how they've offended their dear, kind, loving God. You don't understand the actual way that salvation works. It works by the law first doing its humbling job. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. So how does he get us into this thesis that it's really a rather fine distinction that's being made? Even people today say that it's the love of God that can somehow overwhelm a person and bring them to repentance. Yeah, and I want to stress again, he's going to actually get to this point in the uh, theses we're discussing today, but 
it is true for a Christian, but it is not true for someone who does not have faith. What Walter says is, look, the law can show sin, but it doesn't have any power to renew. We do not become spiritually active by love, but by sorrow over our sins. On the contrary, when we are ignorant of the fact that God has become our reconciled God and our Father through Christ, the truth of the matter is we hate him. I mean, he's that bold. The fact is, as long as you hear the law of God's demands that he's putting upon you and you know nothing about the gospel, you hate God. Accordingly, he says, a person cannot love God while he is still without faith. So he turns to a whole pile of scripture passages that he wants to walk through to sort of show this repeated theme, that the law is all about exposing your sin. So he starts with Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What the law gives you is the recognition of how you have failed God. Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law increases the trespass because when God says don't, well, every one of us experiences this, it's the wet paint sign. Don't touch wet paint. And what does it immediately arise inside inside of you? you? You just reach that little finger of yours out to test it and see, right? That's exactly what the law of God does. It increases sin by telling when God says don't, or he says do, something inside of us says no and wants to go a different way. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, Luther actually translated that a little bit different. He says, Sintema das Gesetz nur zorn anrichtet. So the law, the Gesetz, only brings wrath. The only thing it can produce is this sensation of the wrath of God that we have in front of us, which makes us be wrathful right back toward God. Romans 7, verses 7 and 8. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet... If it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin, for I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. An American translation offered that as, only by the law did I learn what sin is. Great translation there. Galatians 3.21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the clear implication is there is no law that can give life. So when the law is preached to you, it does not have the ability to actually enliven you. It can crush you. It can drive you to despair, but it cannot give you life. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, for the letter kills. And letter means here the the letter written on stone, the Ten Commandments. They kill but it's the spirit who gives life. Finally, from scripture, he points to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And that forms his bridge that he wants to get into this whole discussion from the apology. So he turns to apology article 12 from the Lutheran Confessions. This is what we read there. What follows is even more involved. The adversaries teach that we merit grace by contrition. In reference to this, 
If anyone should ask why Saul, Judas, and similar persons who were dreadfully contrite did not receive grace, here's the answer. We take it from faith and according to the gospel that Judas did not believe. He did not support himself by the gospel and Christ's promise. For faith shows the distinction between the contrition of Judas and of Peter. You might add of Saul and of David. But the adversaries take their answer from the law, that Judas did not love God, but feared the punishments. When then will a terrified conscience be able to decide whether it fears God for his own sake or is fleeing from eternal punishments? The Psalms and the prophets describe those serious, true, and great terrors which the truly converted experience. Such great emotions can be extinguished in letters and terms, but they are not separated in fact, as these dear philosophers imagine. And then he quotes a little further on. He says, We separate from contrition those useless and endless discussions regarding grief from loving God and from fearing punishment. We say that contrition is true terror of conscience, which feels that God is angry with sin and grieves that it has sinned. This contrition takes place when sins are condemned by God's word. The sum of the preaching of the gospel is this, to convict of sin, to offer for Christ's sake the forgiveness of sins and righteousness, the Holy Spirit and eternal life, and that as reborn people, we should do good works. So Christ includes the sum of the gospel when he says, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Scripture speaks about these terrors. Where scripture says this, like, for example, Psalm 38, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Or Psalm 2, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Or Isaiah 38, I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I calm myself into the morning like a lion. He breaks my bones. The apology then goes on. In these terrors, conscience feels God's wrath against sin. This is unknown to secure people living according to the flesh. The conscience sees the corruption of sin and seriously grieves that it has sinned. Meanwhile, it also runs away from God's dreadful anger. Human nature, unless sustained by God's word, cannot endure his anger. So Paul says, for through the law, I died to the law. Galatians 2.19. For the law only accuses and terrifies consciences. In these terrors, our adversaries say nothing about faith. They present only the word that convicts of sin. When this is the only thing taught, it's just the doctrine of the law, not the gospel. By these griefs and terrors, they say, People merit grace as long as they love God. But how are people going to love God in true terrors when they feel his horrible wrath, which is beyond words? What besides despair do those people teach who during these terrors show forth only the law? I mean, Walter loves this entire section, and he says that when our Lutheran theologians wrote these confessions, they put down their work as true Christians. They weren't trying to construct some sort of a fancy system of doctrine. They knew in what way a poor sinner is given rest and the consolation of salvation. In the apology, he says, Melanchthon spoke like a simple Christian. What has made this confession all the more precious is that he speaks all that he says from the fullness of Scripture and from his own experience. And then he relates Luther's experience, which basically is the same as Melanchthon's. 
Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part 14 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We'll briefly go over some of those comments from Luther on the other side of the break and get into the 23rd evening lecture. Stay tuned. sanctified us in the true faith. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ-centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools. We like our crosses full and our tombs empty. You're listening to Issues Etc. Are you looking for a confessional Lutheran church in southeast Oakland County, Michigan, just north of Detroit? Ascension of Christ Lutheran has been proclaiming the gospel and administering the sacraments since 1951. Ascension of Christ Lutheran is also a proud supporter of Issues Etc. Join us for the Divine Service every Sunday at 1015 a.m. in Beverly Hills, Michigan. You can also find us on the internet at ascensionofchrist.org. Pumpkin spice flavored everything is in the air. It's the perfect time of year to curl up with a nice warm beverage using one of Ad Crucem's mugs, featuring your favorite Lutheran symbols, Bible verses, or Christian humor. For example, Jesus' personality type is INRI. St. Paul is the patron saint of the run-on sentence. And of course, chancel culture is practiced here. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part 14 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Pastor Whedon, before we go on, several times you quoted from Walther, you quoted from perhaps Melanchthon, but elsewhere, saying that the law only accuses. We need to put that in its proper context because there are people who will say that's all the law ever does. And what's the difference between saying the law only accuses, as we've heard Walter say here, and the law always accuses. Yeah, I think if the, the question is what's behind the question. So if somebody is trying to say that the law does not have an instructive role in our life, that it doesn't teach us what the will of God is, there is no what we would call third use of the law. Then they are erring because they are using the law only accuses to limit what the law actually can be used to do. When Walther says the law only accuses, he means even in its instructive sense, it's still going to be accusing you because you fail to keep it 
perfectly. That's the way it's going to be. So all of our dealings with the law, it's always going to be an accusation against us. But at the same time, a Christian can handle that accusation because he knows of a perfect righteousness that's been given to him, that the law cannot in any way fault the perfect righteousness of Jesus. How do we get into, well, first of all, before we get to the 23rd lecture, how would you summarize the kind of rather extensive Luther quote that he has leading into it? Walter actually summarized it, and he summarized it so well that I'm going to quote him rather than quote Luther. The Luther words are really beautiful. I think it's from the preface to his Latin works. Walter writes, while Luther's natural heart was raving against God, he was but a short step from the brink of despair. He picked up his Bible again and again, and he kept staring at Romans 1.17. That's the in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He began to think that possibly the text had a different meaning after all, because he'd been taught that that means in the gospel, you learn actually what God is requiring of you full nonstop. And during his persistent musing, reading, and meditating, God helped Luther to see the light. And what happened to him when he had found the meaning of the text, he's told us the same man who previously hated God and murmured against him was now filled with joy unspeakable. He began to love God with all his heart after hearing the most blessed tidings of joy that Christ, the Son of God, has acquired righteousness for the whole world, that the gospel reveals a righteousness gifted, not a righteousness demanded. Only believe in this righteousness and you have it. So there he sort of summarizes Luther's tower, you know, experience where he gets what Romans 117 really is trying to drive to. And once he does, he says the scriptures just opened up to him. The whole book became luminous. The 12th thesis in the eighth place, the word of God is not rightly divided. When the preacher represents contrition alongside of faith as a cause of the forgiveness of sins. This is very important, isn't it? Yes, it is, because (laughs) the old Adam inside of us is forever looking for a way to insert himself and his own work into salvation. That is just his bent. So Walter starts out by clarifying right away, look, no question, contrition is necessary if a person wants forgiveness of sins. However, contrition doesn't cause the forgiveness of sins. Contrition is not necessary on account of forgiveness, but on account of faith, which apprehends the forgiveness of sins. And he makes two points about contrition. Number one, he says, contrition is an effect solely of the law. In other words, the gospel does not affect contrition. What affects contrition in a person's heart is the hearing of the law of God. And then he adds this, contrition is not even a good work. For the contrition that precedes faith is nothing but suffering on the part of man. The anguish, the pain, the torment of being crushed, that is crushed by the hammer of the law. I really like how he put that there. Then he adds some very wise words. He says, in two ways, pastors may speak of contrition as if it were a cause of forgiveness. And he says, we do this either by saying too little or too much about contrition. (laughs) He said, so owing to their lack of experience, many preachers are afraid that they might lead people to despair. They do preach as they should, that contrition must precede faith, but they fear that unless they add some saving clause to the statement, 
one or the other members of their congregation may become despondent. And for that reason, they qualify their statement by saying that the pain one feels in contrition need not be very great and that a person will be received by God if he only desires to be contrite. Walter adds, a comforting qualification of that kind really presents contrition as the cause of the forgiveness of sins, which is a false comfort. What the preacher ought to say is this, listen, when you have come to the point where you are hungering and thirsting for the grace of God, you have the contrition which you need. God does not require contrition as a means by which you are to atone for your sins, but only as an end that you may be roused from your security and ask, what must I do to be saved? Accordingly, Luther says that when he had for the first time grasped the meaning of the term repentance, penitentia, no word seemed sweeter to him than that because he perceived that its meaning was not that he had to do penance for his sin, but simply that he must be alarmed on account of his sins and desire the mercy of God. So that's a great thing. He says the same mistake is made when a pastor is readily satisfied with a slight sign of contrition in his parishioners. In wicked men who have lived a long time in sin and shame, the conscience may suddenly have become aroused and charge them, for instance, with having, I don't know, perjured themselves. They're seized with palpitating fear because of the consequences. Or their conscience may reprove them with having soiled their hands with the blood of murder. However, these people are not alarmed because they regard themselves as poor sinners, but in one particular sin that frightens them. Outside of that, they imagine they're actually good of heart. And he says he witnessed an incident like that, even in Germany. Walter goes on to say, others probably say to their hearers that contrition is necessary, as scripture testifies on every page, and that the reason must tell them that God cannot forgive their sins, which they treat so lightly. Then they proceed to describe to them what must be the quality of their contrition from texts like, well, Psalm 38, I'm troubled, Psalm 6, I've roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart, Psalm 6 again, I wet my bed with my tears. My eyes are consumed with grief. I wax old because of all my enemies. And he says, legalistic pastors then, they make too much of contrition by trying to tell people, you got to have those experiences or your contrition isn't real. He says, look, these methods are both utterly wrong. True, the texts cited do describe David's repentance, but where is there a text that describes the same degree of contrition for everyone? He says, it doesn't exist. When a person has just been made to hunger and thirst for mercy, contrition has done its full work in him. And so he warns us against all kinds of pietism, trying to make that somehow be a, a measurable quantity or a, a path that a person has to specifically go through. It's really a beautiful treatment there of that thesis. I'm Todd Wilkin, your link to Issues Etc. It's part 14 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Our guest is Pastor Will Whedon. He is author of the book Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. You can purchase all of these books by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040 or browse before you buy on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. When we come back, well, we'll mention the pietists. We'll see what abuse they enacted. 
Church music directors can find a new community at Prelude to Postlude, the CPH Music blog. Learn helpful tips for managing music ministry and involving members, and meet the composers of some of your favorite new pieces. Plus, find suggestions of music to use for special services, and preview some of our newest works with free samples you can use at your church. Visit us at preludetopostlude.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Memoria Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Truth-Centered Mission Outreach. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Calvary Lutheran, Indianapolis, Indiana. Faith Lutheran, Rogue River, Oregon. Hope Lutheran, Hampton, Virginia. Lamb of God Lutheran, Papillion, Nebraska. Our Redeemer Lutheran, Cedar Falls, Iowa. Prince of Peace Lutheran, San Diego, California. Shepherd of the Valley Lutheran, Perrysburg, Ohio. St. Paul Lutheran, Chatfield, Minnesota. The Good Shepherd Lutheran, Inglewood, California. And Zion Lutheran, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including issues, etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. You had mentioned before the break, Will, the pietists, and he actually recounts his own experience of essentially being told that he had to do lengthy penance, and Walther being Walther took it more seriously than even his own teacher did. Right. I mean, he had written about this much earlier in the book, right? Or we say written about it. He had spoken about it much earlier in the lectures to the kids. And here he repeats it again, you know, that you've got to go through this step of grieving over your sins in a particular and prescribed manner for it to be real. One more point on this particular thesis that I think is really beautiful. 
he says one of the principal reasons why many at this point mingle law and gospel is that they fail to distinguish the daily repentance of Christians from the repentance which precedes faith. Daily repentance, he says, that's what's described in Psalm 51. David calls it a sacrifice which he brings before God and with which God is pleased. He doesn't speak of repentance which precedes faith, but of that which follows it. The great majority of sincere Christians who have the pure doctrine have a keener experience of repentance after faith than of repentance prior to faith. For having good preachers, they've been led to Christ in no roundabout way. While they are with Christ, their former self-righteousness may make its appearance again, spite of the fact that it's been shattered for them many a time. So God must smite these poor Christians again and again to keep them humble. David's example may serve to illustrate the point. He'd come to faith in a moment, but what misery did he have to pass through later? A prophet had spoken to him the word of the Lord, but to his dying day, his heart was burdened with anguish, distress, and misery. God had ceased to prosper his undertakings. He met with one misfortune after another until God finally released him by death. But all that time, David had contrition together with faith. That is indeed a sacrifice with which God is pleased. Contrition of this kind is not a mere effect of the law, not produced by the law alone, but at the same time an operation of the gospel. By the gospel, the love of God enters a person's heart, and when contrition proceeds from the love of God, it is a truly sweet sorrow acceptable to God. God is pleased with it, for we cannot accord him greater honor than by casting ourselves in the dust before him and confessing, you are righteous, O Lord, and I am a poor sinner. Have mercy on me for the sake of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? I think that is so important that we keep those distinctions in mind. And what Luther was saying that the, the papists and others were in danger of doing by telling people that they needed to be contrite from love, love of God, that they've offended their father. He's like, but that demand of a non believer is an impossibility, but it is the daily life of the Christian. So it's beautiful, beautiful thought there. This sort of, he closes out that evening lecture. Thesis 13, in the ninth place, the word of God is not rightly divided. When one makes an appeal to believe in a manner as if a person could make himself believe or at least help toward that end, instead of preaching faith into a person's heart by laying the gospel promises before him. What does that look like? Yeah, this was one of my favorite theses. When demanding faith, Walter said, we do not lay down a demand of the law, but we issue the sweetest invitation, practically saying to our hearers, come for all things are now ready. Luke 14, 17. And Walter says, a preacher must be able to preach a sermon on faith without ever once using the term faith. It's not important that he din the word faith into the ears of his audience but it is necessary for him to frame his address so as to arouse in every poor sinner the desire to lay the burden of his sin at the feet of Jesus Christ and say to him, thou art mine and I am thine. So he says to be saved by faith, it just means to acquiesce in God's plan of salvation by accepting it. And because this thesis then really touches on the crook's tale of Gorham. I wanted to give you his uh, take on that. 
the crux, the, the cross of theology is this horrible question. So why some then and not others? Why some and not others? And frankly, you know, of course, Scripture doesn't give you one answer to that question. It provides two answers to the two parts, and they don't fit very well together, but that's because our human reason breaks in front of the certainty of the Word of God. Here is what Walther wrote. True, grace is universal. The reason why some are reprobated is that they willfully resist grace. Here, reason enters in with the claim that, accordingly, there must be a cause in the others why they are saved, and this must be that they did not resist grace. But we are at this point confronted with an inscrutable mystery, and anyone who is unwilling to acknowledge this mystery is abandoning the Christian religion, the central teaching of which is that God has revealed to man a way of salvation which no man's reason could have discovered nor is able to comprehend. When this plan of God for our salvation is presented to us, we're all forced to exclaim with the Apostle Paul, Hold the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has first given to him, that it should be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. So uh, he quotes Melanchthon. The cause lies in men, why some give their assent to the promises of grace and why others do not. And he says, this is where Melanchthon stumbles. This is crass synergism. Melanchthon refers to a real cause that's a terminating cause, an impelling cause inside of men. And uh, he says, this is where the Lutheran church then had to part ways with the Loki Communis of its greatest founder when he revised that book in the 1540s to insert this idea that man is himself the cause of his own salvation. Walter says that just undoes the very gospel itself. We, we, we cannot accept it. He does point out, though, very beautifully, that there is such a thing as cooperation in salvation or in regeneration after after regeneration it's not in the act of regeneration but we cooperate with the holy spirit after we've been regenerated so walter gives typical sort of setup for his young pastors to be there to sort of get this he says so when a parishioner comes to you complaining of his inability to believe you must tell him that you're not at all surprised at that statement for no man can and it would be a marvel if he could and you must instruct him to do nothing but listen to the word of God and tell him God will give him faith. Furthermore, you may admonish him not to resist divine grace and not to extinguish the sparks that are beginning to glow in his heart, but your telling him these things does not give him the strength he needs. When the gospel enters his heart, like a blessed water of life from heaven, faith is kindled there. Not until this has taken place may you urge the person to cooperate with the divine grace. We do not by any means reject cooperation on the part of man after his conversion. We rather urge it upon him, lest he die again and incur the danger of being lost forever. So, I mean, you hear there, Walter is chiming in 100% with the very clear teaching of the formula of Concord that yes, in sanctification, 
the Christian by the powers the Holy Spirit has imparted to him in his uh, regeneration is able and must cooperate with the Holy Spirit in all his works. We're talking with Pastor Will Whedon. He's assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, and formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, walking through the theses of CFW Walther's proper distinction between law and gospel. We'll get to the 25th evening lecture right after this. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Have you ever wondered about some of the more difficult topics or teachings of Scripture, such as what does the Bible say about polygamy or slavery or the free will, or what about law and gospel? The October issue of The Lutheran Witness is a twin to the August 2022 issue, and it takes up some of these difficult teachings of Scripture and explains them in detail. To get your copy, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website witness.lsms.org. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Spiritual and religious. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take the step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu, cuchicago.edu. Do you long for a church where the gospel of the sinner's free justification is front and center, and yet where a robust sacramental life is confessed and lived? Do you long for a church that rejoices in the sacred scriptures as the sole basis for the church's teaching and proclamation, yet values and listens to the witness of the ancient fathers and councils? Welcome to the Lutheran Church. We're what you've been looking for. Find a Christ-centered, cross-focused church near you on the Find the Church page at issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. He's host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Pastor Whedon is leading a study this week in Acts chapters 22 and 23, Paul and the Roman Tribune, Paul before the council, a plot to kill Paul, and Paul sent to Felix the governor. You can listen anytime, anywhere at thewordendures.org, the LPR mobile app, or your favorite podcast provider. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. So, Will, how does Walter get us into, I believe it is, the 14th evening lecture having to do with faith as a condition of justification? Now, the 14th thesis, the 25th evening lecture. So, he, he starts out 
by by talking about how manifest or manifold rather and difficult are the arduous tasks of a minister of Jesus Christ. And he says, the hardest job you got is that you not only have to proclaim the doctrine of the pure gospel, but at the same time, you have to be exposing, refuting, and rejecting the teachings which are contrary to the gospel. And he says, the minister who does this will discover by practical experience the truth of the old saying, telling truth makes enemies. He uses the example of the great Saint Athanasius, and he says, you know, he, he could have been content to confess the truth, but he wasn't. He also had to attack the error that was right there in his own hometown, and he had to go after the false teaching of Arius. And if he had not done that, the truth itself would have been compromised and lost, and that would have been unthinkable. So Walter says that always when somebody is fighting for the truth, then false Christians cannot help but attack that person and say, you know, you're nothing but a troublemaker, you're a rebel rouser, you're just trying, you know, kind of like Ahab saying to old Elijah, you know, you troubler of Israel. You know, and, and, and the truth of the matter is, Elijah had it right. No, Ahab, you are the troubler of Israel by the false things that you have introduced and allowed in this kingdom. So the importance of keeping the word of God pure and resisting things that are false leads him into this 14th thesis where he says in the 10th place the word of god is not rightly divided where faith is required as a condition of justification and salvation as if a person were righteous in the sight of god and saved not only by faith but also on account of his faith for the sake of his faith and i think the gold quote there is and in view of his faith. Walter himself had was in the midst of this huge struggle, right, over this intuitu fide, the idea that God actually predestines people on the basis of his foreknowledge showing him who is going to believe so that the person's believing becomes a cause of their own salvation. And, and Walter just flat out rejects that as contrary to the gospel, gutting the gospel itself. And so as he begins working through it, he starts talking about what God's word really means when it says that a person is justified and saved by faith alone. He says, that's really nothing else than this. Man is not saved by his own acts, but solely by the doing and dying of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the whole world. He says, over against this teaching, modern theologians assert that in the salvation of man, two kinds of activities must be noted. In the first place, there's something that God must do. His part's the most difficult, for he must accomplish the task of redeeming men. But in the second place, there is something required that man must do, for it will not do to admit persons to heaven after they have been redeemed without further parley. Men must do something really great. He has to believe. This teaching, Walter says, flat out overthrows the gospel completely. And it's a pity that many beautiful sermons of modern theologians ultimately reveal the fact that they mean something entirely different from the plain, the clear reading of Scripture that man is saved, not by what he himself does or achieves, but by what God does and achieves. Man is justified and saved by faith, Walter will stress, not on account of faith. Our old theologians 
have said that people who charge God with being partial deserve to be whipped. I love that. And then he deals with uh, the uh, teaching of Adam Osiander in his Cologium Theologicum. He said, faith does not justify and so far as it is obedience and compliance with a command, for thus viewed, it is an action and a work and something required by the law. But faith justifies only insofar as it receives and is attached to justification after the manner of a passive instrument. This whole thesis is where our beloved Dr. Nagel grabbed hold of this beautiful statement of his that faith is nothing but being given to. What saves in faith is not faith itself, but what faith is given. And God himself gives the gift of faith with the gift of the gospel. He quotes John O'Leary's, who said, In a certain sense, it might be said that faith is man's work because it is not God, but man that believes. However, this is liable to be misunderstood, and therefore, we shouldn't speak like that. Faith is not an achievement of ours, but it is wrought in us by God without our contributing anything towards that end. Let me read that again. Faith is wrought by God in us without us contributing anything toward the end. He said the old dogmaticians built up their dogmatic treatises of the causal method, considering everything from the viewpoint of cause. And he says, that's kind of dangerous. When they came to the element of faith, they were perplexed about what kind of cause to call it. They hit upon the term an instrumental cause, an organic cause. But he says, you may run through the whole Bible and you're not going to find a single passage which states that man is justified on account of his faith. Wherever the relationship of faith to justification is spoken of in the Bible, terms are used which declare faith is a means, not a cause. Or as again, dear Dr. Nagel said it, faith saves you by what it is given. That's how it works. So Walter uses there the analogy of a hand into which a dollar is placed. The empty hand stretched out. Right, right. Faith is nothing but what it's given. Yes. So how would you summarize what Walter has done? He spent a lot of time on one thesis, and now he's gone through three or four very quickly in yeah. a couple lectures. Yeah. The big thesis that he really hammered home was, of course, the one on the means of grace. That really needed to be clear, I think, to, to get to all the others. But now he's really picked up speed as he's moving along. And each one of the theses that he's running through picks on a temptation that those young preachers are going to have to mix up the law and the gospel. And most of the temptation to do it comes from the pressure of other Christians around them and the way they talk. And so Walter wants to set really clear in front of them, look, there is such a thing as a sound way of talking, and that's what I'm trying to hammer into your guys' heads so that the people then don't draw erroneous conclusions from what you say. Uh, it's a beautiful, helpful thought. Well, it's, it's really important because it shows not only that this distinction between law and gospel is, as he says, the highest art, but it has to be carefully attended to. Mm -hmm. The looseness of our language or the inaccuracy of our language, if we stray from Scripture's way of talking about these things, opens up a Pandora's box of problems for those who hear our sermons. Your final thoughts with about a minute. 
Yeah, he is very concerned with the impact that the preacher's words are going to have on the consciences of those who hear them. And that's really the heart of the Lutheran confession's concern with what Rome was teaching, is that this does not bring comfort to an afflicted conscience. And that is Walther's primary concern running through absolutely all the thesis. How are you, young men, to go forth and preach the word of God in such a way that The law will be heard in all its sternness, the gospel in all its sweetness, and by hearing it in this way, consciences will themselves be comforted and made strong in Christ unto eternal life. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Pray, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, thank you. Thank you, Todd. In Hour 2, Pastor Peter Bender joins us. We will be looking forward to Sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Would you like to learn about the Reformation theology you hear on Issues Etc.? We'll send you a pamphlet of Luther's small catechism for free. It contains the biblical teachings on the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. Order your free copy of Luther's Small Catechism today. Just send your name and mailing address to talkback at issuesetc.org. The Third Commandment teaches us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We do this when we hold God's Word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Jesus invites the weak and heavy laden to rest in Him, our true rest, because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. This weekend, rest in Jesus as you hear His Word and receive His gifts. If you are in Southern Illinois, you're invited to join Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstadt to rest in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn more at trinitymilstadt.org. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.